Amen. Please be seated. As you have your copy of God's Word with you, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 for this morning's passage. You will also find it on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline for today's text. If you were with us last week, um, for the end of chapter 3, you um, may remember that we were given examples of actions taken by Jesus to encourage us, to encourage us to live boldly in the face of persecution and difficult situations and scenarios. And, and that really ties us into the major theme of First Peter, giving us encouragement and hope for living faithfully during trying times. And so Peter concludes chapter 3 by giving us examples of Christ and tells us to look to Christ and see his example and let that example encourage us and strengthen us. Well, as we turn now to chapter 4 and continue that same discussion, that, that same conversation, he's going to tell us to look to Jesus and not only praise God for what he did, but use it as an example for how we then should act. We are much like athletes who are training under a, a master of their sports, one who has perfected uh, their ability to perform, and now we are taking what they say and what they do and in turn implying, implementing it in our lives so that we also can run the race that is before us and do so well. And we do that, of course, by following in the footsteps of King Jesus. And that's what we will see in our text this morning. With that being said, I do encourage you to follow along with me as I read for us God's Word. This morning we will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, and I will read verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please go with me to the Lord? As we enter into a time of prayer, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we look ahead to the challenges of this life. We look at what is known before us. Many of us are in a season of great difficulty. We look to that which has not presented itself yet. The uncertainty, the potential, what might come to be. Lord, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in this morning, may we trust in you and who you are and lean on what you have done in sending your son and his living as an example 
and it is his teaching and training us to live like him. Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts this day so that we not only hear your word, but we receive it and that through it our lives are transformed and we're made more and more into your image. I pray your blessing upon this time. Be with us all. I pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. As we're preparing tonight to watch the documentary Ends of the Earth, um, we announced it during our announcement section, and I hope you get a chance to see it this evening, that um, drew to mind for me one of the first missionary stories that I had read or heard. And that was, um, of course, the story of Jim Elliott and team, um, Elizabeth Elliott, um, his wife wrote two books, uh, one through the Gates of Splendor, I believe was the one that I read it through. And this story, this missionary story, is about Jim Elliott and team who died um, while reaching out to the Wadani tribe in Ecuador uh, back in uh, 56, 1956. Really remarkable story. Um, these men went to share the gospel with this tribe, uh, the tribe uh, did not receive them well. In fact, they speared them to death because of it. Uh, and then the wives of those men went still to that people group and in turn uh, led almost all of them to the Lord. Um, and in fact, a son of Jim Elliot, um, the missionary, um, excuse me, not, not him, uh, a son of another of the missionaries uh, named Steve Saint, he started a mission uh, to the Wadoni tribe that, as far as I know, still continues to today um, and continues to serve that area and those peoples. Um, in fact, he was adopted uh, by the man uh, that killed his father. And I, I think about that story and how that impacted me early on in my, my life and in my ministry. In fact, if you've ever been in my office and sat in my chairs, um, between them is a, is a quote. It's a quote from Jim Elliott uh, taken from his journal. And it's meant so much to me and to my life. It says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That has been powerful words in my life. And it served me well in my time as I think about serving the Lord through the power of the gospel. And it really um, does a good job of setting up what we're going to be talking about this morning. And it makes us ask a few questions, doesn't it? Are we today as Christians prepared to truly live like Christ? To completely and fully live as he lived? Or to put it differently, would we go so far as to give up our lives for the gospel because what we have in eternity is greater than what we can possess here and now? Now, these are strong questions, and they're very hard questions. But as we ask those questions, we recognize the people in Peter's church, or churches that he was preaching to and teaching to, they were asking those questions. Am I ready to die for this? Can I give up my life for the sake of this truth that I believe, this truth that has been preached to me? Will I sacrifice it all for the sake of him who loved me? We must, as believers... We must prepare ourselves fully for what might be ahead in our lives. We must be willing to give up everything for Jesus Christ. And Peter understood this. Peter understood this better than most. 
And so in our passage this morning, he gives us three tools. He gives us three ways we can equip ourselves in this mindset. Um, three ways that we can arm ourselves to face that which is before us. The first way Peter encourages us and equips us is by seeing Christ and his suffering. We see that in verse 1. Imitate Christ in your suffering. The second way we can equip ourselves or arm ourselves is to consider the cost of Christ-likeness, to weigh, to measure what it will cost to follow him. We find this in verses 2 through 5. And then thirdly, the third way we can equip or arm ourselves is by letting Christ completely transform our character. We find this in verse 6. Three tools, three ways in which we can arm ourselves to face what is ahead, to face this world, and to do so boldly. Would you please follow along with me this morning as we begin with the suffering of Jesus Christ. And Peter, for the second time in a short passage, you know, we talked about this in chapter 3, but again in chapter 4, he reminds us, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we accept that Christ suffered. And it, 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 it's worth it for us this morning to think for a moment. And how did Christ suffer? Yesterday I was blessed to teach a communicants class here at our church. One of my greatest joys uh, to get to talk to our young ones about communion um, and the Lord's Supper and what it means and, and how we can prepare our minds and hearts to take of this meal. And one of the questions we discuss is why? Why did Christ's body have to be broken? Why did his blood have to be poured out? And the answer is, he was taking our punishment. He was taking our penalty. That's what we deserve, dear brothers and sisters. We deserve the weight of God's wrath and of judgment. We deserve death for disobeying him and breaking his commands, and rejecting his teaching, and not loving him and loving others as he's called us to love. We have sinned, but Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He offered himself up as a sacrifice. He gave up his life. He died. His body was broken. His blood was poured out in payment, in payment for sinners like you and like me. And that gift, that payment was accepted. It was enough. It satisfied the wrath of God. It, it satisfied that sense of divine judgment, that which we deserve, Jesus took on and he paid it in full. And not just that, he didn't just pay our debt, but he credited to us righteousness. He credited to us a right standing before God and he credited to us the ability to be called children of God, sons and daughters of the King. We get an identity. We get a sense of security. We get a, a sense of belonging. We get to worship. And so when we look at why Christ died, we could say that one of the main ways or reasons Jesus Christ died is so that you and I can worship Him. That we can honestly and truly worship Him. So we ask, why did he suffer? He suffered for us. He suffered for us to make our minds and our hearts right before him, that we can offer a sacrifice, a praiseworthy sacrifice to him. And so we accept the fact that he suffered. 
And we need to be careful. There is a, a duality in communion when we take it. There should be a, a sense of overwhelming joy and excitement. My sins have been paid for. Christ sacrificed himself for me. But there also must be a soberness to that. I cost Christ his life. My sin led him to that cross. And he had to pay it because of me. He had to pay it because I couldn't pay it. He took what I should be taking. And so there's this this soberness, there's this excitement, and we're wrestling with that. But that's part of the suffering of Christ. And as Peter fleshes that out, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, so we've talked about that suffering, then you, Christian, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Think about this. Um, there's There's a pivotal moment in the book of Luke, and if you can remember back to us studying it, uh, those many years ago, Luke 9.51 is a, is a marker in the book of Luke. And, and Luke 9.51, we're told, Jesus fixed, um, or your translation may say, set his face to Jerusalem. From that point forward, from 9.51 forward, every action, every, every um, miracle, every teaching is pointing, is directing, is leading him to Jerusalem and his coming death. We see that as he marches step by step to Jerusalem. Jesus fixes his eyes on the suffering that is to come. And he he does what he needs to do, but he is pointed in that direction. And he works toward that. And so Peter says here to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So as he's saying, dear Christian, find out what will be your death and march toward it. Certainly not. He's not saying that. We can't. No, um, with absolute certainty that the cause of our death, um, nor are we Christ. And so we want to be careful with modeling Jesus in certain ways. But we think about the mindset of Christ. And there's a lot of Luke left. There's a lot of Luke left between nine and the end. There's times of ministry. There's times of healing. There's times of loving. There's times of caring. There's times of serving. He knows what's ahead. He's walking toward it. He accepts what's to come. And yet he lives his life loving and serving and giving to others. And so when Peter says, arm yourself with the thinking of Christ, he's saying day by day, moment by moment, season by season, take what's ahead of you, take what will come, and love here and now. Give here and now. Endure what is before you for the sake of others. You know, we think about Christ. Christ many times went without comforts or status or earthly recognition. Jesus had no home to lay his head. And the, the, the impact of that is astounding. And there's one simple way to prove the, the amazing nature of Christ's ability to suffer for the sake of others. Here we are, just over 2,000 years later, being changed by it. Same story. Same Savior. 2,000 years later, just over 2,000 years later, and our lives are still being changed by His work and by His Word. And so when we are told to arm yourself with that same way of thinking, 
We look ahead. We look ahead to a bigger picture. You, you've heard me pray it over this church. You've heard me say it from this pulpit. I pray that a thousand years from now, if this world is still in the state that it's in, that Christ has not come back, when we're long dead and gone, there's a faithful preacher in this pulpit, and there's faithful people hearing the word of God, that the legacy that, that you are building and building this church goes well beyond you, that you are affecting lives much longer after you're gone. That's arming yourself in the thinking of Christ. That is saying that I'm going to live for him and I'm going to think the way I think and the way I act and the way I treat others and the way I serve. I'm going to do it with eternity in mind. And sometimes that means accepting suffering when it comes. And I, I, I caution us, dear brothers and sisters, we will have to work really hard at not fighting those challenges when they come. We will have to work very hard to live with a mindset that suffering can be for our good and for God's glory. Far too many of us, my, my, myself included, get in this idea of if I'm serving God rightly, if I'm giving rightly, and if I'm reading my Bible enough and I'm praying enough, then things should go well for me. And that's not always the case. That's not always... The circumstance. This morning in Sunday school, we were reading about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And I, I think to their words, our God is able to save us, O king, but even if he does not, we will not bow down nor worship you nor your idols. God is able to save us, but even if not, we will not bow down to you, O king. Sometimes, the answer from God is no. The answer is, I will not take that suffering. I will not take that hardship. I will not take that trial away from you. Because by going through it, by enduring it, it will make you depend on me more. Trust in me more. Rest in me more. Another quote in my office that I keep before me at all times, a quote by John Calvin, the human heart is a factory for idols. We are really good at creating for ourselves things for comfort and for joy and pleasure. Now, there's nothing wrong with comfort, joy, and pleasure unless it becomes the center focus of your life. Unless we, we drive with all that we can and all that we have to get it. Take fitness, for example. Fitness is a wonderful thing. It's something to, to take joy in, and there's many ways you can have fun with it and that you can strive to live a healthy life. But a quote that was given to me once by a fitness professional, peak fitness, peak performance, is simply the slowest measure at which you can die. At the end of the day, that's it. When, if you were 100% fit, if, if you were the most healthy that your body could possess, with your body fat the lowest that you could sustain and live, and you were eating nothing but really healthy things, and you never knew the taste of sugar, and you worked out eight times a week, and you did all these wonderful things, you're still going to die. Peak fitness is merely the slowest rate at which one can die. Fitness is good, it's important, but there are a lot of people that commit themselves to that 100% and they lose their joy. They, they lose the benefit of serving one another. They don't get to eat cake. Cake's good. And it can be a blessing. And I'll tell you what, sometimes for the sake of fellowship with others, eat the cake. 
we can't put something to the degree that it becomes our God. We, we can't put something so important in our life that it trumps everything else. When we're told to arm ourselves in the same thinking and the same mindset of Christ, that's a, that's a determined focus that I will serve the kingdom of God, that I will love others, that I will care for those that God puts in my life. And I will accept what comes. And Peter concludes his passage with an interesting phrase um, as he, he wraps up this section of, of arming ourselves in the same thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And we need to be careful with this because some uh, denominations, some theological branches have taken this and said, okay, um, that means in this life we can get to a point if we suffer enough, we'll sin no more. If we just try hard enough, if we work hard enough, if we do it enough, we can get to the point that it's no longer an issue for us. I read this week a, a story with Charles Spurgeon um, as he had dinner with a man. And the man had told Spurgeon, I have reached a point in my own personal holiness that I no longer have the temptation to sin. And Spurgeon, being Spurgeon, let him go on with the dinner. And as the man was telling one of his stories, Spurgeon took a cup of water and threw it in the man's face, right in the middle of his story. And it said the man started to say words that uh, were not appropriate in any context, much less a Christian one. And he got so angry at Spurgeon, and when he finally stopped, he, he said, what did you do that for? And Spurgeon said, ah, yes. See, the old man in you was not dead. He had merely fainted. I revived him with a cup of water. <laughs> the reality is, we cannot eradicate sin in our lives this side of heaven. We are to work toward it. But one commentator explains it like this. This phrase doesn't mean no longer sin at all. I mean, we have many passages of Scripture that speak against that. 1 Kings 8.46, Proverbs 29, Ecclesiastes 7.20, James 3.2, 1 John 1.8. Rather, it means make a clear break with sin. Or, to put it differently, one has acted in a way that shows obeying God, not avoiding hardship, is the most important motivation for their action. So, following through with the decision to obey God even when it means physical suffering, has a morally strengthening effect on our lives. It commits us more firmly to a pattern where obedience is more important than our fear of pain. And so when we take these actions, when we suffer like Christ, when we arm ourselves with that way of thinking, we demonstrate sin's lack of power over our lives. This is how we weed sin out of the garden. And what we will know, and those of you that have been a Christian for a long time, you don't get to the point that there's no more weeds in the garden. You actually just get better at finding weeds. The, the more God shapes you after his image and the more he makes you into his likeness, the better you get at finding more and more weeds. And that which you thought was flowers is actually more weeds. And this is a lifelong task. But being a Christian is worth it. Please don't hear me and state this as a negative this morning. I don't want you discouraged that, the, that a Christ-like life um, is, is just this awful time of suffering and endurance and I'm, I'm going to take it and take it and take it. But there is a cost. There is a cost to Christ-likeness. And we see that in the second point of our passage. I encourage you to look with me there. But we do say that when someone becomes a Christian, their mindset changes 
Their desires and goals change with them. You know, sometimes this is a process for many of us, and, and many of you can recount stories of your coming to know the Lord and, and how that worked in your life and that which you did love became less lovely and that which you did pursue became less of a goal and a desire. And I've heard stories of people that this was immediate, that this was radical, that this was just a change, like a flip of a switch. All of a sudden that they turned from their past, they turned from their sin, they turned from their way. But however the Lord brings it about, those changes should come. I think of um, A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge. And I think of how he wakes up on that morning after his visit of the three ghosts of past, present, and future. And he realizes that it's Christmas and that he hasn't lost his life, that it's not over for him. And immediately he gets up, immediately. He barely has enough time to put on his clothes and he's, he's running out. He, he calls for someone, go and get a dinner um, for the family. Go and do this, go and make this right. And he just burst into the world a changed man. A changed man. So much so that those that once knew him wondered, what's gone wrong with Scrooge? What a, what a bizarre behavior out of this man. He was so miserly and so self-centered and so self-focused that the fact that when he started being selfless, they panicked and like, whoa, something's wrong with Scrooge. But a changed life, a, a moment of perspective a changed heart. It should be seen in that way. And, and we do see that in our passage. Peter's telling us something very similar. We arm ourselves with right thinking, modeling ourselves after Christ, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, passion but for the will of God. Our goal, our desire, what we are trying to do and be is not human passion, human pleasure, human enjoyment, but is instead, how can I obey the will of God? And God's will, as Peter just said, is to embrace suffering. Embrace suffering as a tool that makes us more holy and better equips us to love Him and serve Him. What does this look like practically? It may mean letting go of certain actions and activities that we once loved. It may mean changing friend groups, the shows we watch, the entertainment we enjoy, and many habits along the way. And this can have a sting to it. I, I, I don't state that. Um, I admit that to you. It can be hard. But Peter is clear. The time has passed to, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Christian, you cannot look like those in the world. And just as a clarifying note here, when he says Gentile, he doesn't mean that as Jew, non-Jew, but he means that as believer, non-believer. Gentile can have a lot of meanings in the New Testament, and specifically here, he's saying don't live like the unbeliever. These sinful actions... Um, Paul actually does a great job of listening, listing them for us in Galatians 5. You know, we, we go to Galatians 5, uh, 22 for the fruit of the Spirit um, in that list. But if you go up just a, just a few verses, um, we get the fruit of the flesh. And we actually get a really good comparison there. The fruit of the flesh are, and then the fruit of the Spirit are. And think about the immediate audience. 
serving under the shadow of Rome, serving in a Roman culture with their twisted ideas of morality, their twisted ideas of sexuality, their twisted ideas of entertainment. I mean, really, they built a coliseum and put people in it, most of the time Christians, and let animals loose on them to murder them. That was how they received joy. And then sometimes they did flood it to have naval battles, which that is pretty cool. But they, they were the masters of creating entertainment for the masses. And whatever it took, ripping one another apart, slaying one another in mortal combat, they did these things to entertain each other. That's the world that Peter writes to. That's the world that the church is around, is surrounded. And he's saying, you cannot look like them. You cannot live like them. It's time past to put these things away, hinting at the fact that some of our people did, that some in the church did look like the world and did enjoy these pleasures and did take part in these sinful acts. And, and let me just say this morning, and I, this goes especially for you young people, you will be mocked by taking a stance like this. You will be ridiculed in your world today for saying no you will be laughed at for choosing not to watch that movie or listen to that music. You will be made fun of for not lying to your parents to go to that party. But please hear me, what's more important? A short while of ridicule or a life that's transformed by the power of the cross? Peter knows it'll be difficult. He admits that. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You will be made fun of. You will be ridiculed. You will suffer earthly consequences for your decisions to not live like this world. But all will give an account for their lives. All will stand before the judge. And while I make sure and emphasize this for you young people because the pressure is great, for the rest of us, we face this too. Let us not just put this upon our teenagers. But let us recognize that in our workplaces, in our hobbies, when we join with others, the temptations are there to make those crude jokes, to talk about those things, that which are inappropriate, to say those things, to think those things, to entertain ourselves with the things of this world. We all face it. it this is not a temptation just for the young. It's a temptation for each of us. But we must not resemble those of this world. Living like Christ comes at a cost. It will cost how you live your life. It will cost what you enjoy. It will cost what you consume. It will cost who you're around. But at the end of the day, it is a cost well worth it. I know this because I know many of you have paid that cost in various times in your lives. And I want you to know how much an encouragement it is to the rest of us when we see you enduring there are many of you that have endured hardship and suffering that the rest of us can hardly even conceive. And you've done it with a smile on your face and joy in your heart. It baffles me, just to be pretty frank. It, it completely baffles me that you have such a love for our God that you can do that. And oh, is it a source of encouragement in my life to know that if you can endure that and that you can smile through it and that you, instead of complaining about your suffering, are looking for ways to encourage and, and benefit one another, then maybe I can too. 
And, and may I just say, and, and this is just a slight bit of an aside, that's the beauty of the church, dear Christian. No one is telling you to go and live against this world, against the grain, and suffer it on your own. No one is ta- telling you to take a bold stand for the cross of Christ and be ridiculed in society and have to say no to certain things and certain promotions and certain jobs and certain benefits by yourself. No, we all are called to do this together. We're called to live with and for one another, to strengthen one another. It says don't live like the world, which means live like the church, live like other Christians. We need each other. And let me just offer this one more thing as a, as a challenging bit of encouragement to you. That means sharing your suffering with each other. I know we live in a very personal world and a very personal society, and it's really hard for many of us, myself included, to open up and share our struggles and weaknesses, but your brothers and sisters need that. We need to know your suffering and your strugglings. We need to know your hardship, one, so we can help you through it, and two, so you can serve as an example for Christ, that we can all collectively together grow because we are his church, his bride. Living a Christ-filled life regardless of the worldly cost, it will prepare us for the days ahead. It will prepare us for what is coming. And doing so day by day, bit by bit, it will have an incredible impact um, on our character. We see that in our final verse as we hear the call to let Christ transform our character. When we look at the Christian and the Christian's life, we've said it must change in a number of ways. The Christian is to accept suffering, seeking God's glory over earthly comforts. We do this by imitating Christ. We must change how we interact with culture. We do this by choosing our actions and our words carefully not taking part in that which the world deems good, but instead seeking to do that which is spiritually good and doing this day after day, time after time, moment after moment, asking forgiveness when we fail because we will fail at this, but striving on, not in our strength, but in the Lord's, we will be changed. We will be transformed. The Bible, biblical term, sanctification, growing more and more in the image of God. And there's one way that this will become evident. There's one very clear way that this will be evident in your life. The more you grow into the image of Christ, the more your life has changed as you love him more and love the world less, the more eager and excited you will get about sharing the gospel. The, The more it will drive you to want to share this with others. You you are the blind beggar who has been given bread. And you were told, as many as you bring to me, there's bread. We won't run out. Bring them. Draw them to me. I will feed them. You don't have to provide the bread. All you got to do is tell others to come. And so as we grow, as we change, as we transform, that becomes more a necessity in our lives because we know how much they need it. They're dying. Even more aptly, spiritually speaking, they're dead. And you know where there is life. Peter says, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though they were judged in the way of the flesh, they might live in the Spirit. And here, Peter is specifically talking about Christians. He's talking about Christians who have died. 
most likely from persecution. And now we come full circle. Peter began by saying, Dear Christian, be ready to suffer. He concludes this section by saying, And some of you have died from suffering. That kind of takes an extra moment, doesn't it, for us? Because he's not just saying, Be willing to suffer. You know, take some moderate inconveniences for your life. You may not have as many pleasures. But he's saying, be willing to suffer, which, by the way, some in your household have died because of. Some of you have taken it to death. It has cost your very lives. But it's not a negative statement. It, that's not like a, like a warning, like be ready to suffer to death. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. These are believers. These are Christians who have died. It cost them their life, this flesh. We were promised it. All the way back in the garden, you will die. Each and every one of us will face that death. But they might live in the Spirit. They're now in God's presence. They are with Him. And we look forward to that. Either Jesus Christ is coming back or we will all face death. Those are, it's absolutely certain that one of the two will be our case. And when either of them happen, we will be in His presence. And then, in that moment, at that time, suffering will end. Sadness will end. Sorrow will end. Difficulty will end. We will be in His presence for all eternity. Everything will be made new. I cannot wait to get to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth. I cannot wait to find out what this life looks like with, with sin removed from it. To see the, the plant produce its full yield to work and return 100% of the effort I put into it. That is what awaits us, dear Christian. That is what we're looking forward to. That's what we're striving for. And by God's grace, He's given us this, this beautiful gospel, the, the, the key to life itself. And He said, now go and share it with others. Let other people know that they can have it too. That this can be their life, their reality. If you but trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you place your hope in Him and Him alone, then you will live. And then all of a sudden, the suffering you do, because that's the secret they don't want you to know, unbelievers suffer too. Except they suffer for no point. They suffer for no gain. It does not benefit them. It's a punishment. It's a punishment for their sin. But we suffer. We endure hardship. We endure trials. We endure difficulty. We change our life, our actions. We don't live like the Gentiles. We live because of the gospel and with the gospel. We proclaim it with his boldness, knowing that a day quickly is coming, that it will all be made new. And that makes it all well worth it. And that's how we're equipped to face whatever is before us. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, these are challenging words. I, I, I fully admit, Lord, in my own heart as I have preached these words and I have heard them, it can be hard to believe them. It can be hard to live them out. It can be hard to accept this for my life. And so, Lord, it's with great trepidation I ask, if it takes suffering to help me see this and know this and believe it, then bring suffering. If it takes trials to trust you fully and completely, then bring trials. If it takes hardship 
to help me love the gospel and love those around me enough to share it with them boldly and freely and bring hardship. As we look to Christ and his example, help us to arm ourselves with his way of thinking that you might be rightly worshipped, that we might be made more and more after the image of Christ. We need you, O Lord. We need one another. We need the church. And so strengthen us, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.